Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to the second episode of uh, Campaign HQ for election season 2022. Last week we dove deep into the state of Pennsylvania and today we're going to talk all things Georgia. Uh, Georgia, you know, not too long ago, uh, obviously there was critical local elections, but really wasn't part of the national political uh, debate and discussion. But that changed uh, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, Joe Biden won the state narrowly. Uh, I think probably the state that uh, most surprised political experts, it looked like it'd be close. Um, but I, I think most of the smart political money uh, had Trump winning and, and the Biden campaign pulled out a remarkable victory, a, a close victory. Uh, and that was followed, of course, memorably by the two Senate special elections in the beginning of 2021 um, that produced uh, the Democratic majority with both Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff winning their races. Um uh, the day before January 6th and the attempted uh, overthrow of our democracy. So Georgia uh, played probably the most important role in terms of what's happening in national politics today, in terms of who our president is, who controls the Senate, uh, and uh, a slew of important races in, in 2022. We have the governor's race, uh, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams with a rematch of their very close 18 election, Raphael Warnock having to run for re-election two years after his first election, facing Herschel Walker, um, kind of one of the most, uh, uh, you know, crazy Senate candidates. We've seen in a long list of, of, of crazy Republican Senate candidates. Um, and then a critical Secretary of State's race and, and, a, and a bunch of important races up and down the ballot. So we're going to go deep into Georgia today with two guests. Uh, we're going to talk to Quentin Folks, who is uh, running Raphael Warnock's United States Senate campaign. Quentin's got a long history of, of great work in democratic politics in states like Illinois and others. Uh, Georgia native who's going to talk to us about their strategy uh, to reelect Senator Raphael Warnock. And then we're going to talk to Greg Bluestein. Many of you probably uh, are familiar with Greg, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, MSNBC political analyst, uh, wrote a great book about the 2020 uh, election in Georgia. Uh, and we'll talk to Greg just to give us an overview as, as, as he interprets these elections, what he's seeing and what we should watch out for uh, in the closing weeks. So I hope you enjoy this episode on all things Georgia. Greg Bluestein, who interprets all things Georgia politics uh, for all of us around the country. I'm sure many of you got to know him during both the 2020 uh, presidential race, uh, the razor close fight between Biden and Trump, and then the two Senate runoffs. Uh, Greg is a, a political reporter at the Atlantic Journal-Constitution uh, and also a political analyst for MSNBC News. You're joining us from the campaign trail, it sounds like, today. Uh, where in Georgia are you? Yeah, I'm in a parking garage <laughs> in Midtown Atlanta uh, after an event with the governor. So the fun never stops. I was with him in Athens for a tailgate over the weekend. I was with Herschel Walker in suburban Gwinnett County, and I'm sure it won't be too long till I'm with Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock at some other fun events. Yeah, well, life is uh, the lead political reporter when you have two marquee races and a bunch of other ones as well. Your Bulldogs are number one now, aren't they? Top-ranked UGA. It was great. I got to speak in Athens over the weekend and drag the kids along with me to a game. It wasn't much of a game, but uh, it's going to be a really fun season. Well, I know you're a Braves fan. I'm a Phillies fan. I hope we meet in the playoffs. You'll probably sweep us, but uh, it'd be nice for us to get back there. Uh, it's been a nice run of, of sports in Georgia. So let's talk about another uh, form of sports, sometimes with more contact, uh, politics. So, Greg, it'd be great just to give, uh, if you could give people an overview of what's on the ballot. I think most people know about the Senate and governor's races, but you've got Secretary of State, State Legislature, kind of what are you paying attention to? Yeah, of course, the top items are that Senate race that could once again determine control of the U.S. Senate and the governor's race um, as Governor Kemp uh, seeks a re-election against Stacey Abrams, a rematch from 2018. But every constitutional office is up for grabs in Georgia as well. That's Attorney General, Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor, Labor Commissioner, Ag Commissioner. So all sorts of down-ballot races are up for grabs as well, in addition to, of course, every congressional race in Georgia too. So we've got a lot we're watching. 
So let me ask you a question, Greg. Uh, do you expect most of those statewide offices to be all close, most of them close? Are there any ones that look like they may be more of a landslide for a candidate? You know, the, the biggest surprise to me of the entire election has been Brad Raffensperger. A year ago today, I would have bet you that he wouldn't even qualify to run for office, let alone be the front runner. But right now, that's where he is. Our, our last AJC poll showed him up by 17 points over Democrat Bean Wynn. So I think that might be the big, you know, the quote unquote landslide. We'll see. Being when you never count her out. Um, but at the same time, you know, Georgia's close. Georgia's a seesaw state. Georgia's very close. So even though Governor Kemp is heading into this with all the advantages that incumbent might have, he's still up, you know, four or five points. We're not talking about 10, 11 points. Right. And he's not sitting at like 53, 54. Well, there may be a lesson there. You know, Raffensperger's being rewarded by a bunch of Democratic and independent voters <laughs> for actually, uh, you know, standing by democracy. You're exactly right. We don't have a, you know, a great history of split ticket voting in Georgia, but that could be one of the races and the Senate race could be one of the races where a significant number of crossover votes happens. So let's talk about that. You just mentioned you you expect the governor's race to be close again, like it was in 18. Um, I think there's a sense, some based on polling, just some based on, I think, uh, you know, folks experience that there could be some divergence between the Senate and, and governor's race there. Do you expect that to happen? Do you think and by the way, maybe there's two ways to look at that. The outcome could be different. Uh, or it could be just the composition of the votes are different. But kind of how do you analyze those races in comparison to each other? Well, first, there's no doubt that Stacey Abrams is the underdog going into this. She's running as the underdog. She acknowledges she's the underdog. Her campaign manager says she's the underdog. She's behind in the polls. Uh, but she's also banking on, uh, you know, A, voters going back to the Democratic fold, voters who might be uncomfortable, you know, who might be flirting with voting for Governor Kemp to go back to the blue fold. And B, she's expecting the electorate to dramatically expand because of the Dobbs decision. Uh, the gender gap in all these polls uh, shows a tremendous uh, gap. Women overwhelmingly supporting Stacey Abrams, men overwhelmingly supporting Governor Kemp. So she's expecting that to play in her favor. But this whole split ticket dynamic in general is really fascinating because A, we have the history of, of kind of straight ticket votes. But B, our AJC poll just a few weeks ago showed 4% of Governor Kemp's supporters are backing Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Another 4% are backing the Libertarian candidate. So you've got to sort of see those, those as a protest vote because Libertarians usually get 1% or 2%, not 4 or 5% in Georgia. This will all narrow. But at the same time, you can see now why Senator Warnock's strategy is really aimed at these swing voters. He's, he's trying not to alienate them, ostracize them. He's not saying very ni nice things about uh, Joe Biden necessarily, right? He's not embracing the president. At the same time, you can hear him talk more about Ted Cruz and Tommy Tuberville than you can about Joe Biden, some campaign stops. Uh, well, the Tuberville thing's smart for a bunch of different reasons <laughs> in Georgia. I'm curious, um, uh, the libertarian point you made is really, really important. Uh, so so maybe it's not five, but even three. I mean, if Warnock's win number comes down to like 48 and a half or 49, I know that doesn't sound like much to people, but that's an enormous difference between having to get 50% of the vote. Yeah, in Georgia, that means a runoff, right? In Georgia, is one of those states where you have to get a majority of the vote. And a libertarian, even if it gets 1% of the vote, one, one or two percent. If you're, if one candidate is at forty nine, <laughs> you know the other one's at forty nine. You're doing it again, as we we're, learned in twenty twenty. We're going back. Yeah. But the good thing I, I always tell, I just literally just told an audience this uh, earlier today, was that whereas in twenty twenty one we had a nine week runoff that ruined our Thanksgiving, our Hanukkah, our Christmas, our New Year's in Georgia. At least now the legislature has changed the law. It's only a four week runoff, so we'll only ruin Thanksgiving. Right. You, you go in early December. So what's it like to cover Herschel Walker's campaign? And I'm not it just must be, uh, you know, crazy, fun, unexpected. Uh, I mean, I, you know, listen, the last 10 or 15 years, there's been some crazy U.S. Senate candidates around the country. <laughs> but, you know, by the way, some of them have won. Yeah. But it must just be. And, and by the way, is his campaign apparatus conventional and he's not? Like, talk about the campaign, too, if you could. Yeah, I think it's all of those things you said. <laughs> you know, fun, bizarre, strange. Um, you got to remember, you know, in, in Georgia, I'm a Georgia native, and Herschel Walker, um, he transcends sort of sports legend. I mean, I grew up with parents who, who could care less about um, 
you know, football, college football. They just were not fans at all. And yet I still grew up hearing the lore of Herschel Walker, right? His name was, and I, and I was born after he won the national championship in the Heisman um, Trophy Award. Uh, I bumped into him in an airport years ago before he was a candidate and took a picture with him and I had the caption, week made, right? That was the biggest, he was, he was that big <laughs> right. of a deal. And he'll remind me about that now, by the way. Bluestein, do you remember when <laughs> you, you, know, you took this picture? Um, so he sort of transcends in Georgia, his name recognition might be higher than anyone else's. I mean, it might be as high as uh, Joe Biden, even before he started running for the U.S. Senate. I'll say his campaign has taken on, it's changed over the, the course of the last year. When he announced he had a, a shoestring staff, it was hard to figure out what they were doing. It was hard to figure out who to contact over their campaign. He had very, very few events. Uh, most of them were behind closed doors, private gatherings. Um, he was doing uh, interviews with friendly media outlets, very little in public. That's changed now. He's, you know, now he's having, running a more conventional campaign. But as you mentioned, he just doesn't say conventional things. Um, I was at the event with him not long ago. Uh, I was the only reporter there where he said, uh, we have, don't we have enough trees? And that made national news. But I can tell you at that event, which was in Sandy Springs, Atlanta suburb, uh, very few people in that audience of maybe a hundred even kind of picked up on that. You know, they, he has this way of connecting with his audience. Uh, he he says that his that his supporters are like family, and he's going to protect them. So he has this unique way of of really uh, uh, of, of making that personal connection that most people after these events, even if he says some bizarre statements, they don't necessarily key on that. They say, oh well, you know he. He had this message that I was I was just like him. Fascinating. It's interesting because you have in both uh, the the gubernatorial. I mean, Stacey Abrams, national figure. Kemp became a national figure. Herschel Walker was for sports, and now he's probably the most interesting Senate candidate. And Raphael Warnock, just because you know, along with Ossoff, won those elections. I mean, these are four big names. And so I'm curious, you know, obviously you've got, you know, the congressional ballot race, you've got Biden, you've got Trump, but how much are these races kind of standing aside from all that? Well, that's the interesting thing, because in a sense, the Senate race in particular is, right? We've got a, a likable Democratic incumbent who is, who even his opponents, you know, in 2020, it was all radical liberal Raphael Warnock, right? Every ad you heard was radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Right now, most of the attack ads are, hey, he's too close to Biden. He's a nice guy, mm-hmm. but he's too close to right. Biden. So I don't think that will hold. I think that there will be more <laughs> vicious attacks going forward. Yeah. But um, that that has made this race a very unique dynamic in that Senator Warnock is, is harder to attack. Stacey Abrams, she's been vilified by Republicans here in Georgia since 2014, right? I mean, she... We all knew she was running for governor, and so strategists were attacking her, you know, almost a decade ago. And so her negatives are higher, and she's more of a known quantity. And I think in 2018, we saw that the national media was picking up on her more, and she was becoming this sort of national name brand. Here in Georgia, she was already fairly well-known, and I think that's coming back to haunt her, too, that she has— she, she's just, I mean, every dog catcher, every county commissioner in rural Georgia has been running against Stacey Abrams for the last decade almost. Right. So why is, and again, they may both end up, you know, very close about the same margin, but why does Kemp have an advantage? Uh, is, is some of it he's getting some support from people who um, actually he's benefiting from being in Trump's crosshairs a little bit? Uh, you know, obviously the economy is not doing great anywhere, but is he given decent marks for that? Like what, what's going on there? I think it's a mix of that. Um, I think he gets the benefit from, um, uh, from his fight with Trump, right? He never said a bad word about Trump. He's the first to say, I never publicly said anything bad about him. I'm sure privately he's seething. Yeah. Um, but Trump made him the top target, said he'd rather have Stacey Abrams win than Governor Kemp, which in the Republican world is about as cutting as an insult as you can in here in Georgia. Um, and Trump won that civil war, right? He won that skirmish. He humiliated Donald Trump's hand-picked candidate, David Perdue, in the primary. And our polls show that 95% of Republicans support him. So there's not some sort of giant cliff drop-off among you know pro-Trump supporters who just can't vote for Kemp. There's some of them, but there's not a significant number of them. Uh, the second is the economy. As you said, it's, it's he's, he, you know, we, we who get paychecks, we only see one economy, right? right. <laughs> we, only see, we only see one result of it, but he makes the argument that there's two economies. There's the national one from Biden, Abrams, inflation, as he calls it, the Democratic, you know, missed uh, bad decisions with the economy. But he touts his record in Georgia 
which includes this booming green industry. We have two new auto plants that are the biggest economic development projects in Georgia history that just announced in the last year. And so he paints a much rosier picture right now. Right. Fascinating. Um, and how uh, how is Kemp handling being on the same ticket with Walker? Are they doing any events together? Are they really running separate races? It's really strange because I had a story just a few uh, days ago about um, how they're both trying to channel UGA football, right? UGA football is the most popular thing around these days with the top-ranked team. Um, they're still not campaigning together, but they're, they're still reading from the, play, the same playbook when it comes to Georgia football. And um, we haven't, you know, they're not necessarily enemies or rivals by any means. They don't have a long history together. Um, Herschel Walker's new in politics. Um, Governor Kemp, of course, is a diehard UGA fan who grew up in the college town of Athens and who's the, the legendary coach, his son, Vince Dooley's son, was was Governor Kemp's roommate. So his his red and black goes really deep. So he has, you know, they, they have, they, they agree on many of the same uh, cultural uh, issues as well surrounding Georgia football and surrounding policy. Um, but at the same time, there hasn't been some sort of effort by either of this, the two camps to really work together yet. I, I think that will change. Um, but they still haven't campaigned publicly together. And um, Herschel Walker wouldn't say whether he even voted for Brian Kemp in the May primary. And had said earlier, he was caught on tape saying that he was mad that there was even a primary battle between him and David Perdue. He just wanted unity is what he said. Fascinating. And how about the Democratic side? We all remember uh, during the Senate runoffs, you know, the, the buddy movie that was Ossoff Warnock. Uh, you know, are Warnock and Abrams doing a lot of campaigning together? Or are they also kind of on separate tracks? It's a great question because they are longtime friends. Stacey Abrams was the reason why there wasn't a bigger name Democrat going against Raphael Warnock back in 2020, right? When, when it was a wide open race and any Democrat could have gotten in and, and maybe won. Uh, and Raphael Warnock was not the elite fundraiser and known quantity he is now. He was hardly known. He would go to events outside of Atlanta and there'd be a longer line to see the local mayor than there would to be see him, than there would be see him. So um, she's the reason she helped clear the field for him. Um, but look, when the Senate's on the line, you run the campaign you want to run. And right now, Stacey Abrams, to some, to some of those swing voters that he's trying to appeal to, is a toxic brand, right? And uh, she's embraced Joe Biden. He, he has not said a bad word about Joe Biden, but he's saying, hey, I'll work with anyone, whoever can help make Georgia a better place. And that's why he talks more about Ted Cruz than he does about Joe Biden at a mini campaign stops. Right. Fascinating. Now, um, you know, when I used to be a, a, an operative, uh, you would, you know, occasionally with leading political reporters off the record, maybe over a drink, you know, go into a little more detail about what you're really seeing in the numbers and what you were optimistic about, what you were concerned about. You mentioned the Abrams campaign thinks the electorate's going to get reshoveled in a post-Dobbs world. I'm just curious, as you talk to these operatives, when they're willing to be honest with you, like like both sides, like what are Democrats saying like this, you know, so let's not, they're positive about the electorate, but like, what are they worried about? What are Republicans optimistic and worried about? Like, what's the real story uh, beneath the talking points? Well, all four campaigns still think that the economy is the number one issue, mm -hmm. right? That's um, important. Abortion yeah. is certainly nothing to sneeze at. It's still a very significant issue to a very significant number of Georgia voters. But the economy it kind of trumps everything still, right? Uh, even though we're seeing some tea leaves and nationally, it might not be as potent of an issue. Um, we're seeing Stacey Abrams try to blend together those the top three issues in many polls, which is economy, abortion, and guns, into the argument that Republican policies against, you know, with supporting abortion restrictions and expanding gun rights are going to be bad for the economy. Um, I think if you gave a truth serum to the Senate side, folks would say we're headed to a runoff mm -hmm. <laughs> where, where all bets are off, especially if control hangs in the balance once again. And I think if you gave a true serum to the governor's folk, the both sides in the governor's race, they'd say that Kemp has a has a solid lead now, not a not a um, impregnable lead, but a, a solid lead, and he's acting like it, right? He's not he's not he's not trying to answer every single one of Stacey Abrams' thrusts right now, every single one of her attacks. He knows he's in the catbird seat.
Wow, a runoff. Uh, I mean, good for you. I mean, maybe not on a personal level, but once again, all the eyes of the nation will be on Georgia and, and your interpretation of it. Um, and how, uh, I'm curious, you know, the polls actually, you know, in 20 in Georgia were, were probably most accurate on the presidential race. Uh, uh, but once again, we see a lot of uh, polling coming in, as we saw in, in 16 and 20, and even a little bit in 18 in Senate races, showing Democrats with big leads around the country. Uh, you've had some showing Warnock with a big lead, but I, I think in general, a little closer to reality. Kind of what's your, I mean, I guess my question is, as you look at this and cover this, what is the biggest electoral story? Will it be the Democratic turnout might not hit its mark? Could it be Republican turnouts depressed because Trump's not on the ballot? Uh, is something going on in the rural counties where maybe both Kemp and Walker overperform or is Warnock able to keep those margins down? I'm just curious, you know, elections are about a lot of things, but at the end of the day, they're about math. <laughs> and so what, what kind of what's the most important trend out there that you're watching? Well, one is we'll see if Governor Kemp can can kind of uh, reverse the Republican backslide in Atlanta suburbs. We'll see if they can, they're still going to lose these vote rich suburbs that used to be Republican strongholds and and flipped during the Trump era. But will they cut into the Democratic lead those candidates? Because that that makes a huge difference, especially in a state where even minor fluctuations in voting habits can have a major impact. Um, The governor and his team are trying to uh, reverse the the Democratic uh, uh, advantage when it comes to the ground game. I mean, I was out door knocking, uh, you know, observing door knockers with Republicans just a few days ago, and they encountered a few voters who had already been door knocked just, you know, a couple of days earlier. And in Republican world, that is kind of unheard of. So there's a lot of ground game work going on uh, to try to. I'm energize. curious, Greg, where where was that door knocking happening? What, this was in suburban Cobb County. Oh, okay, in Cobb County. Yeah, okay. and, and the New yeah. Gingrich's Johnny Isaacson's launching pad that used to be solidly Republican and flipped blue for the first time since Jimmy Carter's era in 2016 and is now really a cornerstone of the Democratic coalition now. So that that tells you how things are changing on the ground. Um, I, this split ticket trend is going to be a really fascinating, important one to see if it holds. It might not, but to see if it holds. And then for Stacey Abrams, the paradox is that she was able to come cl- so close to defeating Brian Kemp in 2018 and what would be the, probably the biggest upset in the country. Um, because of, of a surge of African-American turnout. And right now, one of her big, biggest weaknesses is black voter turnout, particularly black men. And she'll, she was the first to say it, right? That, that she needs black men to come out because they typically under, are underrepresented in Georgia elections, and I think nationally as well. Um, but it's a huge concern for her because she's at 80%, low 80s, mid 80s in many polls, including ours. And she needs to be at low 90s mid 90s in order to win and it won't it's not an easy prospect of trying to you know bridge that gap in the next few weeks so let's talk about that because to me one of the most important national questions uh of the next decade will be do republicans and you know trump was able to do this in some places continue to make small but meaningful gains with particularly non-college minority male voters. Uh, you know, Hispanic men, we saw a lot of that in Florida, down along the border in, in Texas, but also in in particularly some, uh, some rural states, you know, like Trump's numbers with black men, you know, were trending upward. I don't want to overstate it, but in a close election, all this stuff matters. You do two or 3% better mm-hmm. uh, in a demographic and you win. Are you, so, so the polls you just mentioned, are you seeing that? And is that real? In Georgia, just getting double digits for a Republican is a huge accomplishment. I mean, back in 2016, um, Johnny Isaacson hit the double digit mark. In 2014, Nathan Deal, who is then running for a second term, hit the double-digit mark. And it, it, it was almost like a ticker tape parade. They, they easily won their re-elections, but the fact that they, they drove black uh, support to double digits for Republicans in Georgia was huge. And so, yeah, I, I mean, Governor Kemp, you know, back, back during the um, Governor Deal second term, he in, emphasized criminal justice reform. That was his way of, of, of trying to capture more black voters. Governor Kemp, he talks about the economy. Um, he talks about, you know, his decision to reopen the economy in the early days of the pandemic that was opposed by not just Democrats, but President Trump at the time. He won't, he won't say the Trump word, but he'll just say the national media and some national figures. But it was Donald Trump who held a press conference attacking Donald, the, Brian Kemp for reopening the economy. So that's part of his message. And the other is just overall, you know, he made a lot of promises to teacher pay raises, law enforcement pay raises, um, public employee pay raises, and he was able to meet that 
in part because of an economic boom in Georgia, very localized, but a Georgia economic boom, uh, more revenue than record revenue and all sorts of record surplus numbers coming in, um, in part because we're a little bit helped by some federal, <laughs> some federal uh, congressional spending. Well, I, as a Democrat, fervently hope this isn't the case and that Stacey Abrams is able to close this gap and wins. But if Kemp does win, it seems like that's going to be a roadmap for the presidential race in 2024, which is, you know, you know, still lose, but repair some of the damage in the Cobb counties and the Cobb counties of the world. Uh, and, you know, maybe get into double digits. We'll see with 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 black voters. I mean, that's I, I think that uh, obviously there's some uniqueness to that race and all the things that have happened, uh, you know, vis-a-vis Kemp, Kemp. But that's going to be fascinating. So so there are no Georgia House races on most House prognosticators prognosticators list of toss up races. But are there any you're watching closely in Georgia? Yeah. Um, when Republicans redrew the district lines, our two swingiest districts, which were in the North Atlanta suburbs, both went either solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. Um, right. But the closest race we've got, the most competitive race, is down in southwest Georgia. That's uh, Sanford Bishop. He's the dean of the Georgia House. He's been in office for about 30 years. Um, used to be kind of a yellow dog, you know, conservative Democrat. Um, but now is more of, he votes with Biden overwhelmingly. So he kind of votes the party line. Um, but has made, over the last three decades, has made really deep inroads with the agriculture community. Is, is known as a bipartisan operator. And he's facing a, a Republican, Chris West, who has a real uphill battle. It's the most competitive house race we have, but it might not end up being that competitive. Yeah, no, Sanford Bishop was kind of the epitome of the moderate Democrat for a long time. Um, but, you know, that's a lot of rural voters, right? So he's shown strength there, but that's a place where the gravity seems to be working against the party. So that's a fascinating race to watch. I'm curious, Greg, anything changed in terms of campaign tactics, use of technology between, you know, this cycle in 2020 from your standpoint? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the the door knockers, they're using the same apps they've always used. Um, you know, we're seeing messaging changes. $270 million have been spent or reserved on ads in the Senate race and governor's race in Georgia. And, you know, as eye-popping as that is, it's still only a fraction of what we saw in the runoffs where, where almost a billion dollars was spent. But what we're seeing is there's these campaigns are having a hard time breaking through to voters they still say TV and direct mail are the most effective ways, but it's hard when you have back-to-back-to-back commercials and so many people are moving away from traditional TV watching. And so we're seeing some innovative spends. Uh, Stacey Abrams, for instance, paid for um, advertisements on those little TVs on gas station pumps, uh-huh, uh-huh. 55,000 of them all around Georgia. And so when you're getting your gas in Georgia, odds are you might see Stacey Abrams tell, tell you that she wants to extend the gas tax break through the end of the year. Um, we, we've seen pro Herschel Walker groups literally give away money, give away $50, $100 gas and grocery vouchers to voters, you know, promoting his message, but not tied to actually voting for the candidate because that would be illegal. So there's, there's just these innovative ways. Uh, we've seen digital ads that are designed just for media attention, but never, never really go anywhere, but certainly get us to write about them. Um, so you know, we, we see that, but really the bulk of it's still on traditional stuff, which is the TV, TV, TV. Uh, and a lot of sports viewing going on down there through the fall. So, Jake, oh, yeah. Greg, you've been very generous with your time. So what are you, as you, as you look into the next, uh, you know, uh, let's say shy of two months, you've got mail ballots going out right October 11th. Will Warnock and Walker debate? You'll start to evaluate, you know, those early returns in terms of ballots. Like, what are you going to be paying most attention to uh, to help educate you about where the race is so you can educate all of us? Yeah, we'll be watching, A, you know, whether mail-in interest is nearly as high. We don't think it will be, you know, nearly as high as in 2020, but whether it's uh, competitive with 2020. Um, Because our new voting law, which we really haven't seen in a high turnout election yet. We saw the municipal races in primaries, but we haven't seen it, you know, in a general election midterm where millions of people will cast ballots. So we'll see, because that was primarily targeting or making it harder in a sense. Uh, it primarily involved mail-in votes. So we'll see how, what, what sort of effect that has on the mail-in ballots. Um, I'm watching the split ticket effect. Yeah, I'm watching um, whether or not minorities... Black uh, voters of color in particular, uh, black voters, um, 
end up going, you know, getting enthusiastic about um, Stacey Abrams' campaign to the degree she wants them to, watching college-educated white women in the suburbs like everyone else are, <laughs> because because they they could well hold the key to this election. So could so many other demographics. And when it comes to a debate, we know there's going to be multiple debates between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. As of this taping, we still... I'm still a little bit skeptical. I think there, there's a better chance than ever that a debate would happen. Um, we get tired of writing about it because it's so tedious, you know, this this or that twist of the screw. Um, but I really hope for the sake of Georgia voters, both both these candidates get on the same page and decide to debate. Well, the Walker-Warnock debate will be one for the history books, I think, if it happens. Um, but we're reminded, you know, Walker's an unconventional candidate and maybe he'll uh, completely crapped the bed. But, you know, Trump was not uh, judged by most uh, debate um, sort of analysts as having done a good job, particularly back in 16, because it was unconventional, but it worked for him, both in the primary and the general. So you just never, you just never he know. He did enough. Right. You know, it's clearly not talking points. And that could be Senator, that could Herschel be, Walker, right? Yeah, that could be Herschel Walker. Yeah. The expectations are so low. He's going up against a, a, a well-known orator, right? Senator Warnock, who's the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, who's at home on stage. Any anytime you put a mic in front of him, he he is a natural. And so there's high expectations for the incumbent senator. There's low expectations for Herschel Walker. So he could do just enough just enough to get by. But really, these candidates, as you know, are just looking for a couple sound bites That's that they can just right. replay over and over again. To right. their, to their base. No, I don't envy Team Warnock's, uh, you know, job both in terms of the expectations game, but also preparing. Like, who's going to play Herschel Walker in the mock debates, and and how does that person prepare? Uh, and try and give you know Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, as many accurate looks about what Walker may do. Well, listen, Greg, thank you for all the work you do to keep us informed about all things in Georgia. Georgia remains. Uh, one of the most fascinating and important political states in the country. That will be the case this year and again in 24, where it's no doubt going to be a marquee, if not the marquee battleground state. So uh, we're looking forward to helping you uh, interpret all that along the way. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Enjoy the trail. Yes. Now we're going to talk to Quentin Folks. He is Raphael Warnock's campaign manager in his 2022 Senate re-election race. Quentin has a long history in Democratic politics, uh, playing some leading roles in, in Illinois races, uh, among others. Uh, in addition to Quentin managing one of the most important races in the country, it's also one of the most unusual because their opponent, Herschel Walker, is unconventional, um, unprepared, unmoored. Uh, seems like he'll say anything on any day. Uh, so as much as sometimes those things can help a, a campaign like Warnock, it's also a challenge uh, to deal with such an unpredictable candidate. So we're going to go deep into the Warnock-Walker race with Quentin Folks. Quentin, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, so much I want to talk to you about. Let's start with this, though. Some people still live in states where a lot of people don't vote earlier by mail. Georgia's done it for some time. It's just important to remind listeners that uh, there's a lot of commentary about, you know, what's going to happen between now and November. <laughs> and, you know, uh, as a campaign manager, Quentin knows uh, you really want to hit your stride as those ballots go out. So talk a little bit. Uh, let's just start with... Um, uh, you know, the Republican Party over the last decade, at least, has had kind of a rogues galley of crazy Senate candidates. You know, we've had uh, one in Delaware who, you know, I guess for a time thought she was a witch. And we've had rape apologists and all sorts of folks. Herschel Walker, though, may be uh, the most um, unprepared uh, candidate we've seen uh, in what I think is still considered a competitive Senate race. So I just like to, obviously, you've got your blocking and tackling you have to do as a campaign manager. I'll talk to you about in a minute. But what's that like running against someone um, who's so unpredictable, so unprepared, so unmoored? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, by and large, I think when you're running against someone like that, you need to focus on what you can do in your message. Um, I think that we have done an extremely good job of staying focused on how Senator Warnock um, has done the work for the people of Georgia. Um, you know, but at the same time, you have to respect your opponents. And, and in Georgia, it's a, it's a polarized state. Um, and as you'll probably hear me talk about in this interview, that does not mean that we feel like uh, that's a reason for us to be worried. Uh, this is a partisan state, and so therefore the margins are going to be close. Uh, but we're talking to everybody. Uh, we're staying focused on that, and you know we're we're, we're taking our our hits when we can. Uh, when Herschel Walker does appear and and, and speaks, um, you know it's something that I think that we want to make sure Georgians hear. Uh, and you know we just have to continue to stay 
on top of our message and the work that Senator Warnock is doing for us. You know, I think that a lot of times with some of the negative or the contrast messages, I do think there's an air of people um, in the state of Georgia that want to hear about the work that's being done for them uh, by our candidates. And so that's where we sort of find home base and stay there and where we can draw contrast to that or lack of contrast because there's sometimes just just nothing. Um, You know, we do so. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, numbers. So um, we obviously, and I'd encourage everybody listening to, to spend a few minutes to go back online and look at the results in the presidential race, uh, obviously a, a key state that Joe Biden won, probably the most surprising outcome to a lot of people. And then, of course, Senator Warnock and, and Ossoff uh, won those special elections to deliver the Senate the majority. So that's the map, uh, you know, close races in both November and January. I'm curious, Quentin, um, you know, in part because of of Senator Warnock's strength, uh, now he's got a record to run on. Uh, Herschel Walker, obviously, at least in some places of the state, I assume, is a a compromised candidate. How is that map going to differ a little bit? I'm not necessarily saying blue and red, but like where might you overperform compared to, um, you know, those elections uh, in the last cycle? Uh, And are there places where, I mean, a campaign manager's job is to be worried about everything, (laughs) but like where are your biggest areas of concern where you're really trying to shore things up? You know, I think that uh, when folks think of of Georgia, they immediately go to Atlanta and think of, you know, turning out, um, you know, the base in Atlanta. Uh, But, you know, in the rural part of Georgia, Senator Warnock, uh, two years ago, demonstrated some uh, efficiency uh, in winning. Uh, as you remember, or for the viewers or listeners, um, Senator Warnock outperformed President Biden in 122 of the 159 counties in Georgia. Um, and of the 129 Republican-won counties, he won 96 of them. So 96 of the 129 Republican counties. So Senator Warnock has a record um, of winning in places in Georgia where Democrats have never won. Um, and, you know, that was part of a wave. But we've made sure that we've stayed on top of those numbers and have a sustained communication uh, with those counties and those voters living within those counties uh, about the work that Senator Warnock is doing for them. Um, I think that, again, going back to the previous question, highlighting the work, um, because I think that this is an accomplishment election. I think that this is an election where people really want to hear and see what candidates or elected officials are doing for them. Um, And so far in the two short years that Senator Warnock has had in office, um, he's done an excellent job of delivering for the people of Georgia, wherever they are and wherever they live in the state. So those 122 counties you outperformed Biden, you know, some of them are probably counties you won, but it's important to remind people uh, lots of counties when you run races, you know, you're going to lose. But if you lose them 60, 40, you know, instead of 70, 30, that adds up. And so even though, yeah, you had a little bit of a wave, are you thinking you're you're going to be able to kind of replicate that performance against Walker in a lot of those counties? Um, I think I think that we have a chance to do so. Um, I think obviously in some of the counties you have to look, there's been a lot of stories written uh, about Republican turnout and about the Republican ground game this cycle uh, and then turnout for Democrats. I think one of the most important things is continuing to speak to everybody. And so even on some of the counties where you're outperforming um, as a Democrat in some of these rural places, if you're getting, you know, 40, it's better than the 20 percent that's been gotten in previous elections. And so I think that we have a strong uh, ability to sort of hold up some of those margins. Uh, for me, it's not necessarily about sort of replicating what was done in 2020 and 2021. Um, it's about running uh, our own race this time with a different opponent. I mean, things are different. Uh, Kelly Leffler and Herschel Walker are very different opponents. Um, and I think that we have to tell the story about who Herschel Walker is uh, and what Reverend Warnock is doing for the people of Georgia. And if we do that, I think we'll hold any gains that we were able to make in 2020 and 2021. Right. No, that's very smart. And what's, um, um, you know, what's driving enthusiasm on the ground? And when I say that, it's obviously voter enthusiasm because you want to drive up turnout as much as you can in your base areas, but also volunteerism, activism. Um, you've obviously in Georgia, I mean, Georgia's sort of ground zero for Trump efforts to overturn the election. <laughs> you know, you had a couple of Republicans, at least down there, willing to, to stand up to him. Um, you've obviously got the abortion issue. Um, you know, you've got uh, health care issues. Just kind of what's what's driving uh, the activism in the base? Obviously, you know, you've just got a lot of fans of Senator Warnock. But I'm curious as you, because I'm sure you measure that. Uh, what and, and I think this is an important question because, you know, 
you have to at least reach your numbers on turnout, right? I think we've seen in recent elections, the Republicans have surprised on the upside. Um, and so you have to probably say, hey, we're expecting them to do that again. So obviously you want to do your business that you need to do with swing voters, as rural counties we talked about, but you also need to drive turnout up, uh, you know, to the levels you need to get to your win number. So what, what are you seeing in terms of motivation in the base? I think, you know, by and large, one thing that is different for Senator Warnock than I think is different from any other Senate candidate that's running is that he has not had a full term. Um, And I think that Georgia voters are sort of, you know, they remember uh, a lot from the last election because it was so recent. And I think that making sure that they understand that this is a continuation in finishing the job. I think that the time frame in which Senator Warnock has been able to accomplish a number of things that he's been able to accomplish for the people of Georgia um, in the two years uh, really matters to a lot of people. And so to our base voters of what you're getting at, I think it's a, you know, protecting what you started um, mm-hmm. and sending someone back to continue to represent for you uh, because he's really only been in there for two years. And I think that it's an interesting dynamic in the state of Georgia. On one hand, voters in Georgia are incredibly enthused and ready to get back out to vote. On the other hand, um, they're exhausted, right? Yeah. We've asked a lot right. uh, of voters in Georgia uh, over the past, you know, two and a half, three years, particularly for Senator Warnock, um, you know, voting in 2020 in November, voting in January of 2021, and then turning around again and asking them to vote again in November of 2022. And you don't get that without a sustained communication effort. Um, And I think as soon as he was sworn in, you know, part of that went from television and digital to constituency work. Um, taking care of the problems of the people of Georgia. And look, that's one thing where I came on very early on uh, in the senator's campaign. We immediately knew this was going to be about what is he doing. Um, I think that there was a bit of a wave for Democrats uh, in uh, the last election. But this time, it's Senator Warnock. Uh, We're in a midterm. Uh, We're not relying on that. And again, because of the numbers that we talked about a little bit earlier, David, we know that Senator Warnock can communicate with these voters. They're willing to hear him. uh, And they like what they see and hear when they do see and hear him. So... Right. So I'm curious, um, you know, Senate races um, do develop their own identity, um, you know, in presidential years and not. There's just enough money being spent. You're able to reach out to voters. Uh, I mean, where I feel Warnock uh, is certainly known throughout Georgia. He's kind of a national figure, as is your opponent. So talk about that. I mean, how much of a how much is just, a, you know, congressional head to head ballot uh, thing going to be a factor here? You've got Biden, you've got Trump. Like, how much of the national environment is going to be important here? And it's got to be important to some extent. But, but how much will this race kind of, uh, you know, stand on its own uh, and, and be treated uniquely by a bunch of voters? I mean, I think that it's going to stand on its own quite a bit. Uh, and, and I say that hopefully uh, not to sound cocky, but I say that because of the work that we've put in to, to make that. So um, I think, you know, from day one, we've maintained um, the fact that Senator Warnock can speak to any Georgian anywhere uh, and win there, um, as we've talked about a lot. Um, the political environment, always you have to take into account. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, Senator Warnock is on the ballot in November, not President Biden uh, and Herschel Walker is on the ballot, not Donald Trump. Um, And I think that voters know that, um, not to offend voters in any other place in the country, but I think Georgia voters are some of the most sophisticated voters. They actually pay attention um, to the issues put in front of them. Uh, And this race is about the individuals, um, not about Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, you know, we see that bearing out, you know, across the board uh, in a number of places. When we go to counties where Democrats typically have not been, um, we see voters responding in ways that they typically don't respond to Democrats. And I think that that's because of the messaging, because we're actually showing up, which is a huge piece. Um, and so, look, there's no doubt that, you know, the trends and, and the numbers um, from the top of the ticket or presidential numbers, you know, matter everywhere. Uh, but I think that our race is going to be able to stand on its own because of the way that we are utilizing the senator's unique ability to speak to anybody in the state uh, and, and the fact that we're getting there to these places. Georgia is a pretty big state. Uh, I, I actually grew up here. Uh, but even when you get here and begin to travel it uh, in a way that you're campaigning and going to these you know, far flung counties, I um, you know, remember growing up and playing, you know, high school football and driving around the state. Um, very small school up from Sly County, Georgia. But uh, once you begin to travel around the state, you realize just how massive it is and just how a lot of these places have not seen uh, members of either party, Republican or Democrat. And I think that that's one area where we've really expanded upon and a place of where 
you know, I'm not sure if they went there in 2020 and 2021, but we've definitely made sure that we've gotten the senator back there this cycle. Um, and it really shows with the enthusiasm for those voters. And so I think our race is going to be able to stand on its own quite a bit. You do have a governor's race. Uh, and so in any uh, and I just talked, you know, to folks in Pennsylvania last week uh, who have, you know, big governor's race, big Senate race. Um, obviously, every Democrat in the country uh, wants Stacey Abrams to win and wants Raphael Warnock to win and wants a bunch of great down ballot uh, results. Um, but there, where do you see, and, and, and I know this can be tricky for you, but I'm just saying, where do you see some divergence between the governors and Senate race? Is there certain types of voters? Is there certain... Um, you know, geographic areas of the state? Or do you think those two states will travel? Do you think those two races will travel uh, pretty closely together? Oh, well, look, I I can't speak for, for Leader Abrams or her campaign. Senator Warnock has known Leader Abrams for years. Uh, and it's no doubt that Georgia will be better off with her as governor. Um, one of Senator Warnock's biggest concerns is getting Georgians in the Medicaid gap covered. Uh, and with Stacey Abrams as governor, that's a real possibility. Um, it's something that the senator has been fighting for. Um, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, and it's something that needs to be done on a statewide level. Um, he's tried to advocate and push for funding. He's going to continue to try and advocate and push for funding because there are several hundreds of thousands of Georgia voters living in the Medicaid gap, and we know that that's something that Leader Abrams cares about as well. Um, you know, that said, I know that, you know, you're hitting on and you're probably seeing a lot of stories and articles being written about this. These are two different races uh, with two different candidates and, and two different opponents, um, two different dynamics. Um, you have incumbency on one side, you have a challenger on the other side. Um, and so we're going to continue to do the work for the people of Georgia uh, and push to communicate with every voter, no matter who they are, Republican, Democrat, Independent, um, and sort of let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, we're confident on the, the Warnock side of things. Um, that if we're communicating with all the voters in the state, regardless of, you know, party affiliation, um, that at the end of the day, when they show up to the ballot box, they're going to vote for the best person candidate that has the ability to represent them and do the job in Washington, D.C., and not for the party. So uh, Georgia is also a place where we've seen uh, a lot of efforts to make it hard for certain parts of the electorate to register, to vote, some purging. Has that uh, been a huge headwind for you? Have you guys been able to kind of organize around that? Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously um, making sure that people can vote and removing sort of boulders and roadblocks that that have been unnecessarily put in the way um, is extremely important. And so, you know, um, vote by mail and the rules around vote by mail and who you can send applications to and, you know, making sure that those applications are filled out correctly. And even, you know, with ballot boxes, um, it is absolutely something that is probably the number one concern for me, uh, particularly as we get down the stretch is, you know, we do all this work up until the point to try to sway people people to vote one way or another. But, you know, if they can't actually do that activity um, as easy as possible, um, then, you know, it's problematic. And when you talk to voters about voting, you really want to sort of make sure that they know um, that, you know, this is something that should be easy. This is something that that should be, um, you know, so, sort of just a right for them. Unfortunately, in the state of Georgia, um, we have to be realistic about the situation. And so when we're communicating with voters, making sure that they know um that, you know, they could be in line, um, you know, making sure that they know that, you know, if they can't vote for whatever reason, that this is a place that they can call, um, making sure that if they're getting conflicting information, that this is a place that they can go to to get the right information in our, you know, our hotline. Um, I think it adds actually a different element of how you communicate with voters, particularly around messaging and mobilization towards the end of a campaign um, in the state of Georgia, because, when someone's going and they're having to stand in line for six hours <laughs> to vote, um, whatever they're voting on needs to be worth it to them. Uh, and so it adds another element onto our campaign of just what's at stake in this election. And I think, you know, fortunately for us, um, there's not many fortunates to, to only being in office for two years and having to run again. But fortunately, <laughs> one of them is the fact that, like, Georgia knows that it has bailed out, you know, the nation. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they know that they're poised to do it again. And I think that that's one of the things, going back to the first point about something that's going to mobilize our base and make sure our voters turn out, is it's a continuation of turning back out and, and sending Raphael Warnock back to the Senate to continue to represent in their interest. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, because of Dobbs and just some of the other things that are happening on a national level, 
Uh, it's never been more important for them to do so. And the stakes are even higher and, and Georgia voters see that. Uh, but it's on us as a campaign to make sure that we're doing everything we can. We are asking a lot of Georgia voters. Um, and so making sure that we're doing everything we can to remove any unnecessary roadblocks that aren't legal ones um, that we can. Uh, I think hopefully everyone will really take to heart Quentin's answer there. I think it's so important. Um, these efforts to make it harder to register, harder to vote, um, they are infuriating. Uh, they're anti-American. Um, but if you're running a campaign, you have no uh, choice but to build an organization and try and overcome them. And what Quentin just talked about was, you know, it's more work. It's not just, hey, are you going to vote? Great. You know, here's where to vote. You have to remind people there could be issues. And so, uh, you know, that's why anyone in Georgia, I'm sure, Quentin, you're also open to people helping from outside of Georgia. Um, there's a need uh, because the Republicans have added a lot of friction, but it doesn't mean we can't overcome that. Um, I'm curious, just you mentioned um, it's something you're paying a lot of attention to as a campaign manager. I think for folks who maybe haven't worked in campaigns, there's a view of particularly, listen, you're running a a big Senate campaign in a big state with national attention, um, you know, that you're dealing with, you know, fancy fundraisers and you're dealing with debate strategy and ads and hanging out with Raphael Warnock a lot. But obviously, you know, a campaign manager's got to do a lot of different things. Talk about how you, and the most important thing is to make sure actually, you know, you reach your vocal. So you've got to worry about, um, you know, uh, people voting and some of the, the barriers there. Just talk about how you allocate your time, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, um, you know, fortunately, I think one of the, the most important jobs for a campaign manager uh, when you start or take on uh, a task like this is hiring well yeah. um, so that you don't right. have to do it all. Yeah, that's and, sure. and you're only dealing yeah. with um, sometimes the fires, uh, which can which can be hectic day to day. Uh, but, you know, I start my days every day about just sort of knowing what's going on and knowing the lay of the land, uh, which shifts a little bit every day. And particularly, you know, with an opponent like Herschel Walker, it can shift minute to minute. <laughs> um, but uh, making sure that I sort of understand what's going on. Um, there is a budgetary component for all this. The, the sort of dirty side of campaigns is that it costs money to do them. Uh, and on campaigns like this, particularly where you're being bombarded, um, you know, with negative spending, um, it costs money to even sort of, you know, defend yourself and sustain it. Um, and so, you know, making sure that we're on track from a budgeting perspective is is where I spend a lot of time. Um, but particularly, you know, as you just pointed out, things have shifted down the stretch here. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at numbers of door knocks, um, looking at numbers of calls made, volunteer attention. The important thing, as I said at the start of this interview, Georgia is a polarized state, and I think that it is going to be a field margin down to the end. Um, and, you know, while the television ads and digital ads and everything is fun, um, at the end of the day, it's direct voter contact that matters and making sure that, you know, people can actually vote. Uh, it doesn't do you a lot of good to spend millions of dollars uh, on messaging on, on different platforms if people don't actually take that one little action within a, you know, two week three week time frame that you want them to do. And so, you know, that's my primary concern. But, you know, obviously day in and day out, there's the comms pieces of it in the morning and making sure, you know, I'm briefed and apprised on what's going on in, in the media because, you know, that that matters as well. Um, but a lot of it uh, is budgeting, making sure that we can keep the operation going. Um, and then on the and then, you know, on the back end is making sure that, you know, folks are actually voting day in and day out. And we're seeing ballots requested and ballots that are rejected and trying to make sure people understand why. Um, their ballots are rejected, just a signature or a birth date or not the right form of ID or the, the address on a utility bill doesn't match, you know, an address and just tiny little things that are meant to trip up voters. Uh, I really spend a lot of my time on trying to clear the field for them to be able to do that one action that we want them to do. It's heroic work. What time does your day start these days? Four, five, five thirty? Uh, I normally wake up in the morning probably around like I hope not earlier than that. No, I normally wake up in the morning around like five. Uh, and I do try to, to have a cup of coffee in the morning. And, and again, just like read some of the news, a lot of the, the morning news breaks by then. So I can have a, a, a minute to myself to breathe before uh, I'm bombarded with calls. But uh, I like it. <laughs> the velocity, the incoming. So talk a little bit. You, you've you've obviously uh, had a, a storied career in, in, in politics. Um, without giving away any secrets, uh, any innovations that are uh, available to you, either in tech or data, that you guys have been able to deploy? Uh, and I guess what's changed around voter consumption around uh, content? You know, is TikTok a bigger, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, is TikTok more important than it was, for instance, in 20? Just what's changed? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's changed is that you can be creative. Um, and I think that the the one big difference in 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 the race that I'm doing here is the 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 national attention to it, um, but I think it's very important to not get lost in that. Um, I think that at the end of the day, um, 
as good as it feels sometimes to read Twitter and look on Twitter and see things that are positive about your your own candidate or negative about your opponent, uh, you have to remember that Twitter isn't uh, your voting block and that the people of Georgia still are going to determine what happens in Georgia. Uh, but from a you know perspective of what's changed in innovations, I think that one, there's just way more platforms um, that you can communicate with voters on and, and places where you don't even think about being able to get voters or, but they are, um, you know, some of them are a little bit more well-known Snapchat, you know, TikTok. Uh, but even now, I mean, Twitch, it's amazing how many people are playing video games and, you know, advertising on Twitch. Uh, but I think that that is sort of the biggest wave that is sort of changing, um, in, in, in campaigns. And then for each one of them, you have to be able to communicate in a different way, right? Like you have to think about what action is someone doing, um, you know, when they're seeing it. Um, and so, you know, if it's they're taking a break from playing a video game, you know, you've got three seconds to sort of get what you want to across to them in that time frame. Um, and, you know, you get into all these things about force view on digital and all of these things. But, you know, by and large, I think that um, the, the, the sheer number of platforms and where you have to go to get in front of people who will care about your message um, is growing exponentially. Um, and it's only going to continue growing as I think we progress as a, as a country in regards to, you know, just the interest of people um, and, and making sure we do it. But I, it's one of my favorite parts of the job is sort of having my team come to me and talk to me about sort of, you know, um, you know, testing in different ways that we can be reaching voters. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, combating stuff out there that's just not true. Uh, as, as much as I said, I like opening up Twitter and seeing the different stories at the same time. Uh, it's not so pleasant when you open it up and it's just something that's blatantly false about your candidate and starting to spread. And so figuring out ways to sort of, you know, combat that is is also big and something that I think modern campaigns or any modern day campaign of this side should, should be on top of and ready to combat whenever needed. Yeah. It's a game of whack-a-mole, but I agree with you. I mean, it is a challenge obviously, because now you have so many different channels and, um, you know, things have sort of been disaggregated. So on, on the one hand, it's harder to reach voters, uh, but it's it's an exciting challenge and, and the channel sophistication that's required, right, uh, to make sure that you are not uh, producing uh, content uh, that doesn't work for that particular challenge at that particular moment. It's exciting as much as it is a lot of hard work. I'm curious, um, uh, you know, you know, Quentin, we've seen certainly in 16 uh, in 20, a little bit in 18, including in Georgia, I think, where where a lot of polls and Democrats thought Stacey Abrams would win, Florida with with Gillum, uh, you know, that, that there's there's a here and here we are once again, the New York Times had a piece today on a bunch of uh, states where Senate polls in particular, uh, you know, seem to be following that pattern of, of 16 and 20, that maybe they're overly rosy. One, they did point out Georgia being an exception there, that the Georgia polls seem to be more in line with what you might think is going to happen on Election Day. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we're going to get a real wave and landslide. That would be awesome. So maybe it's less of an issue for you, but I'm just curious. That's something I think we have to guard against as a as, as party is just overconfidence. <laughs> and, 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 and what strategies do you think? And again, it may be less for you, but maybe you can offer some perspectives for others just to, cause you know, my view on this is there's a lot of polls out there again, less in your race. There's been a few, but you know, showing Democrats up in Senate races like 48, 40, and that's great, but that's not a hundred percent. You know, the, the, the rest of that vote's going to get allocated. And, and my sense is a lot of it's going to ultimately come home to Republicans, but how do we guard against that confidence that, uh, that, uh, that maybe things look better than they, they, seem. I hope that's not the case, by the way. I think they unfold, hopefully, as these polls suggest, but history suggests that that's probably not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I'll I'll answer this question from the perspective of a a campaign manager, Um, you know, and then I I have a different one that I think for, for just as a as an average human being just sort of watching some of these but right that'd be but super from a helpful. campaign manager yeah. i think that making sure you're being honest about what your approach is and what you're doing um i would say that you know if you're not talking to people or you're discounting whole sections of the electorate because they're not your party you're not going to win them um that that that's just a fact and i think that being honest with that. But, uh, you know, a fear of complacency is just something that I think a lot of people worry about. Um, and it sort of goes back to the first point that I made about, you know, Twitter and the divide there. Um, 
I don't I don't manage a political campaign on Twitter. I manage a political campaign in the state of Georgia. And so I'm always cognizant about what Georgians hear. Um, you know, it, it, it allows me to kill some time on an airplane to sort of see what people are saying on Twitter. But at the end of the day, I care what people in Albany and Macon and Columbus think about uh, Raphael Warnock and about Herschel Walker. Uh, and so those are, you know, things that are top of mind to me. But I definitely think that, you know, if that's something that you're you're sort of worried about and you're seeing this, because ultimately in a state where, you know, it's a poll and you're in a midterm and it's showing Democrats up 10, 12, some of that's going to go back to the Republican and you have to know that. Exactly. And so, you know, taking a look at your numbers and sort of diving in and knowing that if you need, you know, 5% of that, 7% of that, how much work are you actually doing to get that 5%? And I think that at any given times, they're just blips. Um, in time, as, as I'm sure you you understand, David, and uh, we do a lot of them. Um, and to a certain extent, they make us feel good about wherever we may be in, in the course of a campaign. Uh, but I think that for campaign managers, it's really being honest about the approach and the campaign that you're running and not just thinking something is magically going to fall into your lap when you're not doing anything to earn it. Uh, if you're not talking to Republicans, you're not going to win Republicans. If you're a Republican campaign manager, you're not talking to Democrats, <laughs> you're not going to win them. And so I think right. that is what I would say you know, about that. And then unfortunately, there is some work that you have to do. Sometimes you do have to go out and explain to um, you know, donors that, that, hey, that poll's not true. Um, hey, you know, we're, we're not actually up because at the end of the day, you know, people who invest in these type of races, they're looking at these things and making decisions on that. They have advisors that are advising them on, you know, what races to invest in and what not to. Um, and I think sometimes you do have to go back and sort of reset reality for for a lot of folks and particularly for a Democratic campaign this cycle that's showing them up by by that amount or some of these polls. Um, I think you really do have to do some work to sort of just combat and sort of level set because it's dangerous not only for us as a party uh, to allow that to sort of seep in um, and, and for folks to think that like, hey, you're going to run away with this race in November. And then again, quite frankly, a lot of time, a lot of time. So like a poll in, in August or, or late July or June is very different than where the electorate is going to be uh, in late October uh, and early November. And so you, you also have to just sort of put timestamps on it and make sure you sort of keep it there and, and, and lock it away. There may be something that occurred in a moment uh, where, you know, you poll post Dobbs the week after you might be doing a little bit better than you probably are going to do. But at the exactly. end of the day, when that sort of compassion wears off and people are like, hey, I'm a Republican, uh, they're going to go back to being Republican. And again, if you're not there talking about work that you're doing to to represent their needs as well, you're not going to win them. That's a great answer. And that caution, I think, is is so important, you know, most importantly for the campaign managers this cycle, but also just for activists around the country. Uh, which is uh, to to act accordingly. <laughs> that these are probably going to be close races. Uh, again, without you know giving away any trade secrets, how do you um, assess? And it's really I always tell folks like it's not important for a campaign manager to know where the race stands. Right? Yeah, it's just important to know what do I do with that information. You know, where can I maybe gain a few votes? Where am I struggling? Um, how am I modeling turnout? What can we do there? But I assume are you using both sort of larger samples, shorter surveys to build a data model, and then you're doing your sort of traditional 600, 800 person polling. Um, you have, a, I guess my question is, do you have a mix of data inputs coming in, um, both to tell you where the race is, but more importantly, how to act on it? Yeah, I mean, we, as you can imagine, with a, with a, with a race of, of this size and, and importance, uh, we do a lot of polling. Uh, you talked about my time allocation. I think a lot of it is spent in poll drafts. Uh, but, <laughs> Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. But yeah, it's, 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 it's a big part of the job. But we do we do spend a lot of time um, looking at that. And I think, you know, larger surveys, um, you know, also being honest about it. I think that, you know, one of the things is, and, and, and I, you know, polls are important uh, for what they are. Uh, but at the same time, some of it, you know, has to has to to make sense. Yes. Um, in a sense. And, yeah. and everything isn't as rosy. And, you know, you can go back and forth about what you think is going to happen. And if that doesn't play out, then, you know, that that poll or potential poll could be useless to you. Um, but I think that, you know, we sort of have a sample and, and sort of take a look. Um, and again, being honest about the the different variables and thinking about what was happening. Um, you know, fortunately for Georgia, Georgia has one of the most sort of volatile cycles for you to look back and try to make a poll. Um, you know, you take a look at the gubernatorial in 2018, then you take a look at the uh, general in 2020, then you look at the runoff in 2021, 
And then, you know, fast forward to um, the general in 2022, and each of those elections has different turnout numbers. Fortunately for Georgia, all going up, uh, which we think bodes well for us. Uh, but, you know, you start out with sort of that model, and then you you have to really sort of take a look um, at the electorate. The one thing about Georgia, it being big, there's, you know, uh, several media markets here. Right. Um, and when in each one, you have to sort of determine, you know, what you need to be doing and what you need to be saying in each one. Um, and I spend a lot of time making sure that I know what's being said. And and our opponents, as are we, so this isn't a Democrat or Republican thing, our opponents are very sophisticated in ads that they may run in Atlanta versus ads that they may run in, you know, Macon um, or Augusta or Savannah or even Tallahassee media market that's on the lower end of the state. But um, I think that you have to sort of know what voters are seeing and hearing and sort of combat uh, the various different messages. Um, you know, who, the one thing that it seems that, you know, uh, the Walker campaign uh, wants to do to us this cycle is is make this all about, you know, Senator Warnock and, and Joe Biden. Um, and it's something that they're trying across the board. Um, and so it's, it's pretty easy for us to sort of, you know, push back on that and, and talk about the senator's work. Um, regardless of which media market. But we do do polls and have them broken down by media markets, um, you know, have them broken down by topics, constituency groups. So it's a lot, uh, but but it all, we all add up and make sure we overlay it to make sure it makes sense with what we're seeing, right? That's um, such so an if a general election point. survey, yeah. when you're polling, you know, the entire electorate of the state, but then you break it down and just do a poll on one constituency group. Do those numbers sort of match up or are you saying something completely off? So, you know, we have sort of a checks and balances built into the amount of polling that we're doing. Well, that's uh, so confidence inspiring to hear that. <laughs> it's so important. Um, well, listen, Quentin, I, I think those who listen to this will uh, have even more confidence uh, in Raphael Warnock's chances to win uh, this really important critical election. You're obviously on top of everything. And just remind people, you, Georgia, you, uh, the election officials can count uh, mail ballots as they're coming in, unlike some other states in the Midwest. But uh, it still may be a few days, depending on how close the election is, till we know the ultimate uh, outcome, correct? That is correct. And, it, and because of that, it is extremely important, um, you know, particularly for vote by mail and things like that. When you get your ballot, that, you know, people begin to fill them out and respond. And if you notice any sort of, um, you know, issues with your ballot, you have time to do it again. Um, so, you know, we want to do everything we can to make sure that every vote is counted. But uh, the votes are going to be counted as they come in and, and any ballots being rejected will know why and be able to help people cure them and make sure that every vote is counted here on Election Day. Well, Quentin, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Uh, you are probably got to go uh, jump into a budget meeting or uh, review a poll draft <laughs> uh, or meet with your organizers. But uh, real pleasure uh, talking to you and, and good luck in the coming weeks. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. 